If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to the letter of Jude, and I'm going to read the first 16 verses since we've not been here for a while, and some of you are a little newer to the church and have maybe not read Jude in a long time or haven't listened to the previous sermon, so I'm going to try to catch us up to speed by reading the first 16 verses together, and then I'll pray. So find Revelation, hang a left, and you're in Jude. I'm reading from the ESV, so if that's a little different from yours, just try to follow along. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly men who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray together. Father, would you now please grant strength to our hearts and our minds to consider things that our flesh wants to run from things that we do not like to consider in our culture, things we don't even like to consider within the church. Lord, it is a sobering and weighty thing that Jude is addressing. And we need help, Holy Spirit, for ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to bow in reverence and awe. And, oh, Lord, would you grant the preacher strength as well. He is in weakness and fear and much trembling. In Christ's name I ask, amen. 
Well, we return to the study of Jude after a few months away, and it's a 25-verse little book that packs a massive punch uh, when dealing with the enemies of the truth of the church. And as Brandon mentioned earlier, Jude is really not dealing with enemies outside the four walls. He's dealing with men who have crept inside, and those men are always ones that pose the greatest threat. And for the past several messages, we've dealt really with this larger section of Jude from verse 4, and we'll finish in verse 16, with uh, explaining several Old Testament types. Jude brings out these things to establish the danger that these men pose to us as a church. But also he's, he's equipping us to help us better guard against them, and we'll get to that later in the epistle. So to kind of round out this, this larger treatment of the false teachers, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. And so in these verses, Jude introduces a, an ancient text, um, an ancient prediction, really, about the false teacher's sure judgment. And it's a prophecy from the Old Testament figure, Enoch. Enoch. So we're going to handle this message in three points. Everyone's got an outline, hopefully. So first, we're going to see the man in verse 14a. We're going to consider Enoch himself. Second, we're going to consider his message, 14b to 15. And third, we're going to consider, as he closes an application, the malcontents, the malcontents. So first, the message, or the man, sorry, the man, the man. At first glance, uh, Enoch is kind of a mysterious figure to some of us. Uh, he's mentioned four times in the Bible. He appears briefly in Genesis 5 and in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3. He appears also in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. And he's mentioned as a man who walked with God and pleased God. And we can draw from his name that he was somewhat of a learned man, a man of understanding. That's really kind of what his name means. It's what it insinuates. And so two brief things regarding his life here. First, I want you to see that Enoch was a man who walked with God. Enoch was a man who walked with God. He was a righteous man and a faithful man before the law. He was a man whose life exemplified close communion with God. So Jude mentions Enoch as the seventh from Adam to distinguish him from Cain's firstborn son, whose name was also Enoch. So if we follow Moses in Genesis 5, we see that each man in that list that Moses lists out is a man who is counted faithful to God in relation to the promise that was previously given in Genesis 3. So he lists out Adam. Moses lists out Adam first, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, and then Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And so what we have to recognize about Enoch is, technically speaking, he's not the seventh man on earth. Moses is giving us a theological understanding of the genealogy. There had been, by that time, thousands upon thousands of people uh, born into the world. And so when Jude calls Enoch the seventh from Adam, he's counting with Moses theologically. Go see Genesis 5. Uh, Matthew Henry, I think, clears this up for us. He says this, quote, It's the list or catalog of the posterity of Adam, not of all, but only of the holy seed who were the substance thereof and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. It is the, the names, the ages, and deaths of those who were the successors of the first Adam in custody of the promise. Genesis 3.15, God pronounces the gospel to Adam and Eve. They believe that gospel. They pass that gospel on to their posterity. And you have Enoch as one of those men who was in reception and custody of that promise. And Moses then records for us each man in his generation. They were faithful to that promise. And so... Jude is trying to set before us a contrast between a godly seed who was faithful in his generation, the seventh from Adam, with the seventh man from Cain. Does anybody know who that is? It was a man named Lamech. He was the first polygamist. 
and whose life was characterized by bloodshed, Genesis 4. So, beloved, Jude pays attention to his Bible. Uh, and this phrase, seventh from Adam, is, is more significant than we can realize at first glance. Enoch was in custody of the promise from Genesis 3.15. And his faith made him a remarkable man in his time. Listen to Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up by the hand of God so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. He did not die as other men die because he did not live as other men live. Enoch walked with God. But secondly, Enoch was a prophet full of the spirit of Christ. There were teachers of true religion before the law, that is, before God chose to commit his will to writing, uh, using Moses. You can see that in Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's before the law. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, Peter says, 2 Peter 2.5. And Enoch is described as a prophet. So Peter says men like Enoch were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Enoch prophesied in the Spirit of Christ. So just as sin was in the world before the law, that's Paul's testimony in Romans 5, so there were true preachers and prophets of the promise before the law. Enoch was one of those men. So from the very beginning, from the very beginning, God has never been without a testimony of the gospel on earth. Adam and Eve heard it. They received it by faith. They named their firstborn son in light of it. More on that later, though he sadly disappointed their hopes. Before the flood, God was not without a testimony. And not just in Noah, but in a man like Enoch and others like him. And it begs kind of a question in my own heart. Is it not apparent that men in ancient times with less revelation seem to live with greater gravity than men in modern times with more revelation? We live with way less gravity than these men. The light that Enoch had, he truly believed. And it transported him to heaven while yet alive. So that's the man. That's the man of the message. He was a man who walked with God, and he was a man who was full of the spirit of Christ. What about the message? Point two, the message, verse 14b to 15. So the text says, Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude sets before us now in this kind of capstone message, rounding out his treatment of the false teachers, he set something before us that, for our modern ears, is probably the most politically incorrect thing you could ever preach about or talk about. Uh, it's not even popular in the church, the ones who possess the revelation of God. It's a topic that is never in vogue, anywhere, at any time. It's just not. Preachers mutter it. They shy away from it because they don't want to offend you or run you off. The people of God avoid it in their interactions with sinners. Yet Jesus spoke of it more than any other topic. And Jude brings forth the unstylish yet fundamentally necessary truth of divine judgment. Without the fact of divine judgment, beloved, the gospel morphs into nothing more than life advice. 
The power and life of the cross is gone without it. A word like grace is robbed of its meaning and reduced to nothing without the fact of judgment. Left out, left out, false teachers have all the room in the world to boast loudly and mock God in their book titles with things like your best life now. Can any true preacher, can any true Christian say such a thing? If it's my best life now, the only thing I have afterward is hell forever. This is not my best life now. It is not, and no true preacher can say such things. So Jude brings forth just a completely, a topic that's so not in vogue, not even the church really wants to address it. But I want you to notice first the antiquity of this message. The antiquity of this message. The doctrine of the day of judgment is ancient and has long since been foretold. From the fall of mankind forward, it's baked into the soil of our existence. Everything from an alarmed dog barking to the blushing of your cheeks to Hollywood movie titles, Terminator, Judgment Day, it exposes the fact that we are far far east of Eden. Our original state of innocence is gone. And there is something deeply wrong with the world. And there must be a reckoning. You can see it in how kids play with their toys. A reckoning of judgment. It's been part and parcel of the divine message from the very beginning. The threat of death given in the garden before the fall implies it. Listen to Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It was on account of Enoch being the seventh from Adam, the great-grandfather of Noah, that this message existed before the flood. Moses makes it plain in many places. Look at Deuteronomy 32 when you have a chance. David knew it. Psalm 50, 22, we read it this morning. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Solomon knew it. The wisest man that walked on the earth knew it. Rejoice, O young men, he says, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Ecclesiastes 11.9. The Old Testament prophets, we know this from reading our Bibles, it is littered with the idea of judgment. Peter himself speaks of it. Their condemnation from long ago, he says, is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. His mind was glued to the idea of a reckoning. He can no more speak about God without speaking about the judgment. And it's a truth that's baked into our very natures as creatures of God, as image bearers of God. Think about this. In Romans 1, in verse 32, what does Paul say about those who refuse to worship God and continue to live in immorality? It's an interesting text. Though they know God's righteous decree. It's baked into who we are as image bearers of God that when we sin, there must be a reckoning. And Paul says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Judgment is baked into the nature of who we are. So by citing Enoch... Jude, uh, being a true minister, makes it clear that this message has been part and parcel of the divine message to humanity from the beginning. He stands in a long line of faithful men. That great day, beloved, has been settled from of old. The Apostle Paul says, 
he has fixed a day. It's like when God spoke the calendar of the world into existence, he said, that day I have fixed on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It is a settled day, an appointment day, which all mankind will give a reckoning. And it is a day that has been settled from long ago. So notice its antiquity. This is not something new on the scene. This is not something fire and brimstone preachers came up with in the 1940s and 50s. This has been preached from the beginning. But notice also its authority. Its authority. Jude's message is straightforward. I think when we read it, probably no one in here thought, I wonder what he's talking about. It's pretty straightforward. I don't think anyone who reads the text is confused. However, the form in which he gives the message has troubled many in the church. He quotes an ancient prophecy not recorded in the pages of Scripture. You can't find that exact quote in the Old Testament anywhere. This has been no little controversy in the church. Some early church fathers sought to resolve it by either chunking Jude in the trash can or incorporating his source into the canon of Scripture. It's kind of been two polar opposite uh, you know, points there. Much ink has been spilled, and many, many opinions abound. But I don't think this should trouble us as a church. And I do think there is a clear way forward. So Jude quotes from an ancient Jewish apocalyptic source, written in Greek, called First Enoch, or the Book of Enoch. Now, if you get out there on the internet and Google the Book of Enoch, you get into some boogeyman stuff, and you can go down a rabbit hole and never return. I don't encourage you to do that, um, but Jude uses it in a God-honoring way, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, It's a book that apparently, uh, but that didn't apparently, uh, wasn't apparently written by Enoch himself. It's um, kind of a falsely attributed book to Enoch. Uh, It was popular in the Jewish and early Christian communities at the time. And if we remember, Jude was one of the four brothers of Jesus. And this sort of literature would have been very popular in the circles in which Jesus' brothers moved. Jude quotes the prophecy as true. He says, this is true. These men, these false teachers, will suffer this judgment. If the idea of quoting a non-biblical source troubles us, I want us to kind of consider briefly three other places where Scripture pulls non-canonical sources, non-Bible sources together in order to instruct the church. And if you know your Bibles, you know where I'm going. Two places in Acts 17. Paul, when standing before the men of Athens in the Areopagus, quotes not one, but two Greek philosophers in his apologetic against the Athenian idol worship. Acts 17, 28, Paul says, quote, In him we live and move and have our being. Some of you have that on a coffee cup at your house. Did you know it's a Greek philosopher? It's in the Bible, but it's a Greek philosopher, Epimenides of Crete. Is it not true because Epimenides said it? In the same verse, Acts 17, 28, he quotes another Greek stoic, Eratus, from his work called Phenomena. Quote, for we indeed are his offspring. Again, is it not true because Epimenides said it? Are we not God's offspring because a Greek pagan said we were? I hope we don't arrive at that conclusion. Third resource, third point we can kind of hang our hats on. What of Paul's direct quote of Epimenides in Titus 2? He calls him a Cretan prophet. The Isle of Crete, he's a prophet. Quote, Cretans are always liars, 
evil beasts, lazy gluttons, then Paul says, this testimony is true. This testimony is true. Affirming something for us, something we need to think about closely, that wicked men can say true things, and it can be used in the instruction of the church. If you don't believe that, you have to wrestle with those three places at least. But to push it even further, those quotes were inspired by the Holy Spirit and put into Holy Scripture for the church. Maybe John Calvin can further help clear up this matter for us. He knows just a little bit more than I do. He says of Titus 1.12, From this passage we may infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors. All truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Besides, all things are of God, and therefore, why should it not be lawful to dedicate to his glory everything that can properly be employed for such a purpose. Can you plunder the the gold of the Egyptians and use it for godly purposes? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If Paul found it useful to selectively quote Greek philosophers, could we not conclude that Jude is well within the proper bounds to quote, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a prophecy handed down by a man who is said to have walked with God. Jude quotes Enoch's prophecy as true and useful, a prophecy that had already been handed down for ages. I do not see anything unreasonable in that proposition. What has been written, Paul says, in former days has been written down for our instruction. Just as Paul quotes from the milieu of Greek sources that those men knew, so Jude quotes from a well-known tradition that the Jews uh, had as provenance among them, which is in full agreement with Old Testament revelation. There's not a thing quoted there that disagrees with any doctrine in the Old Testament concerning God's judgment. So he shows us the uh, antiquity of the message and the authority of the message, what is the actual message. You're like, get to it, preacher. Too much background data. So notice its content. Notice its content. The message is a judgment upon apostates, upon false teachers. And it's concerning the last judgment, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it is a specific judgment. Enoch's words were very general, And Jude brings them into focus on these men. You can see it in the text, verse 14. Verse 14, it was also about these. Who are these? The false teachers in the church at the time. It is these men who will incur this judgment. But it's also an arresting message, an arresting message. Look how it begins. It says, behold. Behold, the Lord comes. Jude seeks to arouse the attention of the church, kind of to arrest their attention. And the faithful prophecy begins with behold. Now what we know about judgment is this. It is sudden. Behold its suddenness. Matthew 24, 36. No man knows the day or the hour. Behold, it is sudden. But behold, it's also final. There will be on that day no more appeal. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. And behold, it is irreversible. It is irreversible. Lazarus says in Luke 16, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It is an irreversible chasm. But also this message is personal. This message is personal. It is a personal judgment. Enoch says the Lord comes. This Jesus, the angel says in Acts 1, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It is Christ who is the judge of the last day. For the Father judges no one, he says, but has given all judgment to the Son. Every false teacher, every apostate, every troubler of the church, these men who rejected the Lord earlier on in the epistle will deal fully and finally with the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. And that dealing will be personal. And he's personally coming, as the text says, with 10,000s of his holy ones. With 10,000s of his holy ones. Just a magnificent picture of his arrival. He's coming with a myriad of holy angels. His revealing from heaven will be, as the Apostle Paul says, with his mighty angels, 2 Thessalonians 1.7, and his army, and with the voice of an archangel as his heralds. He's coming with a myriad of holy angels. But whether you believe it or not, he's coming with a myriad of holy saints as well. That's you, and that's me. He's coming with a myriad of holy saints. When Christ comes to judge, his saints come with him. His saints come with him. Every last one of them. Countless billions of them. Paul says, says elsewhere that he's coming on that day to be glorified in his saints. We on that great day will shine with the glory of Christ. A glory bestowed on us by grace. And in that glory, we will accompany him in judgment. That is an awesome thing to consider, beloved. But this message is also, as our text says, to execute judgment on all. That word judgment, to execute judgment, means this. To decide the question of legal right and wrong and to resolve the question of innocence or guilt with a final verdict. Jesus says in John 5, 27, and he, that is the Father, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And this is a crucial word at this point because it deals directly with the false teacher's problem. They were anti Nomians. They were against the law. And he's there as a judge to decide the question of legal right and wrong. They and those who followed them, who thought they were free from the law as a rule of life, will only find that they are, from this dreadful point, always and only dealing with the law, the rigor and the curse of it. And it is against all, beloved. The text literally says he is coming to execute judgment on every soul. It's also to, to convict all, to convict all. Hang with me. That is, when Christ comes in this final day of judgment, he's going to offer the clearest and irrefutable proof that we could as he, as he meets out the judgment, we couldn't think otherwise. He's offering the most clear and irrefutable proof that we cannot think otherwise. Spurgeon has a wonderful thought about this, a very convicting thought, so hang with me. Spurgeon says this, quote, The sentences which will then be pronounced will be so just as to be indisputable. And even the condemned will own the justness of it. At the last great day, not one of the condemned shall be able to deny his guilt, 
nor the justice of the sentence. Those sent to hell, he will feel it is what he deserves. There shall be an agreement in every human mind of the sentence of the Christ of God. It shall flash such awesome conviction into the soul of every sinner that though he be damned, his own soul shall say amen to the condemnation. Oh, what a judgment day will that be in which everyone shall be certain, even in his own sad case, that the verdict of the judge is bright as the sun with righteousness and that no appeal can be made. This surely will be the hell of hell, Spurgeon says, that it is deserved even in the utmost pang and bitterest pain. It is to convict all. The irrefutable conviction will be concerning ungodly deeds, the text says. The deeds of the false prophets will be brought into judgment. Other, other translations read something like deeds Thoroughly committed. Thoroughly committed. As Christians, we sin, sadly. And I wish we were free from it. We sin, but we don't sin with all our heart. We fall, and we're enticed to sin. But do, we don't sin with the full consent of our heart and our mind. That's Romans 7. I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. Not so with these men. Look at the text. They sin in an ungodly way, and it's, it's thoroughly committed sin. They trade with sin. They improve upon their investment, and they live by its profit. They, they sin in an ungodly way, and it's thoroughly committed. Jesus will come in the irrefutable conviction of their harsh words, of their harsh words. Verse 15, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, against him. I tell you, Jesus said, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. These seducers have smooth speech toward us, but they have hard words toward God. And lastly, the irrefutable conviction will concern these words and these deeds against him, the text says, against him. This frequent used word here in this passage, ungodly, paints a powerful picture of the false teacher's true problem. Who do they have a bone to pick with? Their problem is with the Lord, period. The false teacher's true enemy is Jesus Christ. And as we will see in verse 16 in just a moment, Jude, Jude brings, this way, brings this out by way of application, and it shows us what their true issue really is. So just to kind of summarize this point, this day, this day, beloved, will be the very opening of the conscience of man as a book before God. No work, you see it there, all the ungodly deeds, no word, all the harsh words will be lost or forgotten. All will follow these men into the next world and all will stand and challenge them and bring them into judgment and agree on the sentence of God. But they do not consider, the prophet Hosea says, that I remember all their evil, and now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Be sure, says Moses, your sin will find you out. And beloved, it will be a public, a public, audible thing for all to see and hear. Every opposition recited for the court Every neglect of grace submitted to the eye for evidence, every oppression of truth, every unfaithfulness, every mercy rejected, none will be able to hold his head up on that day. 
Psalm 1.5, therefore, says the psalmist, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, we've been talking about these men. But my heart is also wondering about us. About us. And a question came to my mind. Will any of us in this room say amen to our own condemnation on that day? Will your sin come out and you agree with it that the sentence is just? What will be your words on that great day? There is hope in Christ alone. Flee to him. Flee to him. But finally here, the message of judgment is a cause for the saints. Hallelujah. And this may be the most challenging thing to our emotions as Christians, to our minds really. This message of judgment is a cause for the saints. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Seducers will be judged one day. And the blackest part of hell will be reserved for those who take advantage of God's people. I say that without resolution, but I say it with trembling and a mixture of pity. The message gets no harder than this because it gets no worse than this. False teachers exploiting the truth, exploiting souls for the sake of gain, for the sake of entertaining their lusts. If we have a shred of love for God and the truth and pity for others, deceived souls who sit under these men's ministries, Enoch's message has to echo in us in some small way. Yes, it's right, Lord. It's true. It's just. If this is a hard saying now, if we can't feel that we can identify with this now, there's coming a day when we will. There's coming a day when we will. When our affections for the holiness of God will be so gloriously transformed that the difficulty of rejoicing in these things now will be no more. It will be no more. We will sing a hallelujah chorus. I cannot tell you how that will be, but that it will be. I don't know what happens on that great day of transformation, but I know that it is. Consider Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now whether you believe it or not, those words in Revelation 19 are a future prophecy about what you will sing. You will sing it. John prophesied that you would be there that day, and those are your words coming out of your mouth with your heart's consent. Have you ever thought of that? You will sing hallelujah one day. There's coming a day when what we see and feel very dimly here because of our remaining flesh will be gone. And we will see him and his judgments clearly and truly, and we will sing heartily, beloved. How will it be? I don't know. But let us be a people preparing our hearts for that chorus. Well, finally, the, the third point, this is Jude's application, his application of this prophecy of Enoch. Jude makes a pointed and brief application, and I'll hopefully be brief here as well. Jude says, in light of Enoch's prophecy, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. One translation puts it this way, and I really like this translation, uh, not everywhere, but here especially. Um, it says this. These are men who 
complain and curse their fate while trying all the time to mold their life according to their own sinful desires. They curse their fate, and at the same time, they're molding their life according to their own sinful desires. They talk big, but will pay men great respect if it's to their own advantage. Sounds like a politician. False teachers are said to be grumblers. The word literally means one who expresses oneself in low tones of discontentment. These men will be brought into judgment for the harsh things they grumble against God. It shows the false teacher's ultimate view of God. They grumble against him. They grumble, just muttering under their breath. And mankind's been grumbling since the garden. This woman that you gave me. Grumbling. He grumbles at God's decree. He grumbles against God's laws. He grumbles against God's providence. He grumbles against man as his equal. He grumbles against man as his superior. He grumbles for what he wants. He grumbles for what he's lost. He grumbles at what, he's, what he has. Spurgeon, again, you know these sorts of people. Nothing ever satisfies them. They're discontented even with the gospel. The bread of heaven must be cut into diced little pieces and served on dainty napkins or else they cannot eat it. And very soon their soul loathes even this light bread. There's no way by which a Christian man can serve God so as to please them. They will pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were here, they would find fault with the colors of the stones in his breastplate. You know those kind of people. They're grumblers. Jude's application shows that grumbling is a great sin. It is the fertile soil for the very beginnings of a false teacher. It starts with grumbling against God. Every false teacher in Israel began as a grumbler against Moses. Do not grumble, Paul says, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. They're grumblers. This is where they start, but this is not where they end. First, they grumble in a low tone of discontentment. Then they move to outright complaint. Look at the text. These are grumblers and malcontents. That is, they complain about their lot in life. Jesus' rules are just too hard for them. And they hate the truth because it exposes their lifestyle for what it is. They're malcontents. It's a strange thing that sin does. It entices us, yet it never fulfills us. It's like the Turkish delight that Edmund was addicted to. It makes us a walking contradiction like these men. Look at the text again. Look at the text. These are malcontents following their own sinful desires. Malcontent? How could you ever be malcontent if you're only doing what you want to do? Which way is it? These men choose a deviant lifestyle, and then they complain that what befalls them is their unfortunate fate. Sin makes us a walking contradiction. And again, sin is a strange thing. It's never content to stay where it's at. One brother years ago told me it'll take you further than you want to go and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And we see this progression in our text. First grumbling, then outright complaint, and then finally, what is it? Loud mouth boasting, playing the favoritism game. The word bombastic comes to mind. You know what bombastic means? High-sounding speech with little substance. Man, is that not the modern evangelical church? High-sounding speech, Christianese, with little substance to the message. In pride, they boast of knowledge, yet they know nothing. Their sermons are empty, a veneer of spirituality. They always have a word, 
yet they have no word at all. They're dynamic and fresh, yet they're stale. They're waterless clouds, fruitless trees. And in their sneaky way, they flatter those they fear and from whom they expect to gain some sort of advantage. They show favoritism to gain. These are men who trade principles, principles for appearances. We'll set that to the side as long as I'm liked. I better not address that in the word of God. They might get mad with me. We can't do that as preachers. We can't do that as Christians. In a word, these are church disturbers. Heresy in the church begins with a grassroots movement of grumbling. A grassroots movement of grumbling. It morphs into charging Jesus with harsh words, and it ends with a full-blown boasting against God and his ministers. Teaching whatever they can however they can, to win followers and gain influence. That is the final judgment, according to Jude, of these men. So, in closing, beloved, as we close out this section of Jude's words of judgment against these false teachers, take his words to heart. Take his words to heart. It's as sure as the words on that page, these things will be. But let us be vigilant in the truth. Let us be vigilant in the truth. As we, as we live our lives, we have to know these things to be on guard. Let us stand on the surety of the coming judgment for those who trouble the church. God will set these things right. He will set these things right. But also, thank God for true preachers. There's two in this room that have been with you for a long time who have labored among you to teach you the word of God, who love you and who will not shrink from the truth. Don't forget to thank God for men who are faithful. It is rare and it's becoming even more rare in this land. Don't, don't forget to thank God for these men. And may the spirit of Jude fall upon this land of ministers. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, great and awesome things are in your word. Things almost too wonderful for our minds to comprehend. And, oh Lord, they wash over us and we're just set back. The, the breath is taken out of our lungs. But we thank you that you've spoken to us plainly as a man face to face. That you've given us your testimony. That you've given us the truth. We thank you, Lord, for this time and your word. We ask that we would commit it to our memories and that we would live by it. Forgive us where we don't. In Christ's name, amen.